Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited today to be speaking with Dr. Laura Feller about her book titled Being Indigenous in Jim Crow, Virginia. This book was published by the University of Oklahoma Press in 2022 and gives us a really interesting insight into something that is quite complex and certainly both on the surface and in the details are, and has these amazing stories to help us understand um, what it meant to have various identities in a particular part of Virginia during the Jim Crow era in the United States. Um, What did it mean to be indigenous? What did it mean to be black? What did it mean to be both? How did this impact uh, family histories, decisions, education, uh, all sorts of other things? This is a fascinating exploration of a particular time and place uh, that has implications for other times and places, including the present. So, Laura, I'm very pleased to welcome you to the podcast to tell us about your book. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Melcher. I really appreciate the chance to talk with you about this. Well, before we get into the details of the book itself, I was wondering if maybe you could introduce yourself a little bit and explain sort of how you came to write this particular book. Many thanks for that question, too, because I I agree with you, I think, that historians should be self-aware about why they choose to study what they study. Briefly, my path to this project went like this. Back in 1978, I had the great good fortune to work for six weeks at a national park in Arizona within the Navajo Reservation, Hubble Trading Post. I grew up in Virginia on the East Coast, and like most other white Virginians, I think, at that time, I knew of the two reservations remaining in Virginia, but was only dimly aware of other Native communities in the state. So the experience at Hubble opened my eyes to the depth of my ignorance about indigenous histories in my country. I got curious about native peoples in my home state. Having grown up in the waning years of legalized segregation in America, I hoped that looking at conceptions of race in the Jim Crow era American South as they affected indigenous peoples, as well as black and white folks, would help me understand that era with better context and perspective. Hmm, really interesting. And absolutely, I very much subscribe to the idea that as historians, we need to understand kind of what brings us to a particular project. So thank you for starting us off um, with that kind of curiosity, I suppose. Um, And I think your book (laughs) does a lot to uncover this history that is, um, I think you're correct in saying to, you know, unknown to a lot of people. And one of the reasons that this history seems unknown or is unknown, really, um, you point to kind of quite early in the book that uh, one problem we have is literally an issue with record keeping, that we 
in some ways don't actually have super clear facts to kind of go back to and point to in the historical record and that there's complexity in excavating um, around understanding those records, which hopefully you also do in the book so that we can then um, see what impact they have. But before we get into kind of um, the histories of the actual people, even if they weren't recorded very well, why were they so hard to record? Why were these identities just not well I guess, written down? I think it stems from the the larger context, and thank you for that question too, the larger context that by the 19th century, generations of Black, Native, and White Virginians had found love and built families across racialized lines. Virginia had become a profoundly mixed and plural society. But Many white Virginians over centuries worked to maintain what became known as white supremacy by upholding the spectacularly unrealistic idea that race was a two-part thing with everyone on one side or the other of a so-called color line separating black people from white people with very little room for anyone whose ancestors included black, white, and indigenous individuals. Now, to be clear, Virginia laws of the 18th and 19th centuries did acknowledge that some Virginians were, as white people put it, mixed or colored or mulatto rather than Negro or black. This is given the realities of interracial unions and family building over centuries. Virginia law also officially defined what made someone American Indian, but the essential purpose of those efforts was to create race as a two-tiered caste system in which everyone was supposed to be tagged as white or not white. This meant that using a third racialized category officially, such as Indian, represented a potential crack in the edifice of racialized segregation. A little background on that. Beginning in the 17th century, Virginia had laws against so-called interracial marriage that were designed to protect that racialized binary that I was talking about. The earliest such law aimed to punish marriages of whites with any non-whites, whether they were black, mulatto, or Indian. To give you an idea how squishy and shifty legal racialized categories could be, In the colonial era, the word mulatto could be applied to a person with a white and an Indian parent. But for quite a while, Virginia's legal definition of mulatto or colored encompassed anyone who had a black grandmother or grandfather, or as the law put it in 1785, one fourth part or more of Negro blood. In Annabelle Virginia, there was a strong tendency to lump all free people of color under that heading, including Native Virginians, subjecting them all to restrictions placed on free African Americans in that era. After the Civil War, as new forms of formal legal segregation took hold in Virginia, People of color were all subject to the constraints and gross injustices of Virginia's Jim Crow regime, whether they were labeled black or colored or mulatto. The percentage of black ancestry 
that made you legally colored shifted in 1910 to 116th. And I, I like to point that out because it may sound really arcane, but I think it shows um, that this blood quantum fraction thing was really not based in biology or um, any kind of natural phenomenon. Um, so the legal notion of a blood quantum expressed as a fraction remained after 1910, but it was altered and tightened at a time when Virginia had also taken steps to narrow opportunities for black people to vote. So that's a little background. 20th century Virginia segregationists dealt with the obvious absurdity of the notion of race as a simple black and white binary by asserting that Virginia native peoples all had at least one black ancestor so that they could then argue that no real or full-blood Indians remained in Virginia. This notion that one drop of black blood made someone black, or at least not white, became entrenched in Virginia law in 1924 and something called the Racial Integrity Act. And I think we'll get more, we'll get to that in a few minutes. American Indians historically in the United States have faced the idea that some high degree of Indian ancestry was key to official legal recognition of their indigeneity. In contrast, for many white people, the idea one drop of black blood made someone black was appealing as a way to draw racialized lines in support of so-called white supremacy and segregation. Official governmental difficulties with categorizing indigenous Virginians stemmed essentially from the fact that Virginia's laws for a long time were not designed to document people's cultural or social or ethnic identities, but were intended to shore up an unrealistic conception of race as a black-white binary in service of Virginia's systems of segregation. Hmm. Thank you for explaining that kind of as it results within the immediate time frame of the book, um, but also kind of how we got there. Because I think if you start just from the idea of there is a binary, the, the kind of obvious answer is, well, but that doesn't make sense. Why would nope. there be a binary? <laughs> so right. understanding kind of the trajectory that gets us there um, really makes uh, quite a lot of, it's, it's quite important. And especially when we then get into um, some of the particular families that you talk about in your book. So I'd love to move to the experiences of Lucy Perriman Scott um, and her descendants, her family, um, which pretty much just by existing, (laughs) you argue and kind of going about their lives, uh, you argue in the book that they, uh, quote, show the rickety underpinnings of the unrelenting fight that white Virginians waged for for white supremacy. Um, So this kind of goes to show almost what you were talking a little bit about in the previous answer, that uh, there was kind of this really intense contestation over who got to be what and kind of what the ranking was. Um, how can we see Lucy Perman Scott and her family sort of as part of that contestation? I think it shows not only that the legal definitions, the formal 
official categories of race and embedded in Virginia law, and to some extent in federal census records, um, were only part of the story, and that the application of those categories could be, let's to put it mildly, very inconsistent when it came down to cases of specific individuals and families. Um, the 1850 federal census, for instance, categorized the family of William Scott and Lucy Pierman Scott and their children as mulatto when they were living in the Richmond, Virginia area. In 1854, frustrated by the dearth of economic prospects and lack of opportunities to educate their children that they faced as free people of color in antebellum Virginia, they departed for Brantford in what is now Ontario, Canada. Several of their children also made their way to Canada with their families, but two of Lucy's married daughters stayed behind in Virginia with their spouses and children. Over generations, some descendants of those two daughters were sometimes categorized as Indian in the United States federal census. But any one of those individuals might be, like Lucy's son, McFarland Pierman, listed in the census in one year as mulatto, then in a later census as Indian, and then again in a subsequent census as black. Among other Powhatan individuals, comparable variations in census racialized listings were are not uncommon. Were not uncommon. You could go from mulatto or black to Indian, or sometimes to be categorized as white. Now, this shows, in my opinion, that official racialized labels had a tenuous relationship, to say the least, with the realities of a person's actual identity and ancestry. And the success of Powhatan people like the Pyramid Scott families in asserting their Indianness over generations after the United States Civil War shows that Native Virginians could and would challenge that system, even as white people feared that challenge as a threat to one-drop notions about blackness and race that were at the foundations of Jim Crow. Hmm. Very interesting. Um, thank you for that summary. And I do want to point listeners to um, the book itself for uh, obviously a lot of detail about the particular family and the people in it. And they had some great letters between them. And um, so just to make listeners aware that there is a lot more detail about the family in the book. Um, but I sort of want to kind of continue pulling at some of these big picture threads, as it were, to understand uh, these entangled dynamics and ask about um, the law that you've already mentioned in one of your earlier answers, because um, this really had quite an impact. So what law was passed in Virginia in 1924 and what impact did it have particularly on indigenous tidewater communities? Well, the, the law that is most germane here as something that was called the Racial Integrity Act of 1924. And I think that title alone tells you a lot about the intentions of the people who boosted that law and helped pass it. Um, well, that concept of that one drop of black blood made someone black or colored was popular and present and virulent in the United States. 
It was not a matter of law in Virginia until the Racial Integrity Act of 1924. Um, that act was yet another in a long string of laws against interracial marriage. And it first, for the first time in Virginia, defined a legal racialized category in terms of whiteness instead of prescribing what made someone black or mulatto or colored or Indian. The Racial Integrity Act stipulated that white persons could marry only other white individuals and it defined whiteness as a possession of, and I'm going to quote here, no trace whatsoever of any blood other than Caucasian, unquote. Uh, the one exception in the law was someone who had one sixteenth or less of the blood of the American Indian and whose other ancestors were all white could be considered legally white for purposes of this law. Um, this has been jokingly called the Pocahontas exception because it was likely this provision about one sixteenth or less of the blood of the American Indian. It was likely intended to reassure elite white Virginia families who took pride in being descended from Pocahontas that the state legislature was not about to tell them that they were not white. At the same time, this provision shows how indigenous Virginians could and would complicate and challenge the concept of race as a black-white binary that this law was designed to perpetuate and institutionalize. Uh, after passage of the 1924 Racial Integrity Act, Walter Plecker, a physician who was head of Virginia's Bureau of Vital Statistics, made it his mission to prevent anyone in Virginia from asserting an Indian identity and thereby evading any part of Virginia's Jim Crow regime. Plecker and his fellow advocates of the 1924 law claimed that there were no real Indians in Virginia because of their belief that all indigenous Virginians over centuries since 1607 had some African-American ancestry. A one-drop rule in their minds therefore applied and May Virginia Indians colored, as they put it. This wasn't the first time that that notion had risen in Virginia. Advocates of, in the 1840s, for instance, a group of white residents of King William County had petitioned Virginia's General Assembly for dissolution of the Pamunkey Reservation lands on several grounds, including their claim that Indians living on those lands were legally, quote, free mulattoes, as it is believed that all have one-fourth or more of Negro blood, unquote, and that this mangling, as they called it, had obliterated, and I'm going to quote again, all striking features of Indian extraction, unquote. Um, I think it's the language, it's cringeworthy, but I think it's worth reciting some of it to emphasize how um, unrealistic it seems. Um, so Plecker wasn't the first to push a one-drop notion, but he was particularly persistent in his efforts until he retired in the 1940s, to enforce that one-drop notion. 
He threatened midwives. He urged local officials not to acknowledge Virginia Native people's Indianness on official documents and wrote articles for national audiences and altered birth records on what he went on which what he considered the wrong race had been assigned to a Virginia Indian. As you might imagine, his activities created a legacy of bitterness within Virginia's Native communities. Yeah, a legacy of bitterness um, is probably putting it mildly. Uh, you know, the quote that you read out from that law make it very clear uh, that this was not exactly subtle language. Um, and even the idea of reassuring uh, families that, oh, no, your legacy to Pocahontas, that bit's okay. But literally anything else is not um, makes the case incredibly clear. Um, and in some senses, at least, I sort of reading this in the book kind of expected, um, you know, maybe one response of the indigenous communities would be in some senses to kind of isolate, to kind of go, okay, well, <laughs> we're just going to try avoid engaging with you all um, because clearly we're not particularly welcome and we don't really want to try and conform to this. In my mind, not being an expert in these communities, that was kind of, I would be like, well, yeah, that would make sense. That's a rational response to people being horrible. Um and so I was really interested to then read about um, actually some quite sustained contact between very white, very outside people coming into these indigenous communities, um, specifically ethnographers. Um, so not just white outsiders, but white outsiders literally coming there in order to document um, indigeneity, I suppose, in some senses. Um and we have examples from other communities and other contexts of that kind of relationship not going particularly well. Um, and so I was really uh, glad that you sort of investigated and excavated and helped us understand what those relationships looked like in this particular context and showed the multiple ways that the indigenous community managed this relationship, that it wasn't a one-way thing. Um, so I'm wondering if you can kind of tell us about sort of who were these white ethnographers um, and how did the communities they came into sort of deal with their presence? Right, right. And I think part of the background, um, you, you mentioned wisely that you might expect people to isolate to stay within the community. But the Powhatan groups that are the subject of, of this work were relatively small and not politically powerful and were also quite connected to the larger economy of Virginia by the time the 20th century rolled around. So it wouldn't have been a simple thing for them to really close ranks and stay within um their communities as protection. So they took steps um, to promote their indigeneity outside those communities. And toward the end of the 19th century, they attracted the attention of ethnographers at the United States Bureau of American Ethnology within the Smithsonian Institution, which conducted anthropological work related to Native peoples all across the United States. Though at that time, only two Powhatan groups had reservations, 
Bureau of American Ethnology researchers also looked at other Virginia Indians, such as the Chickahominy, who are not yet formally recognized by the federal and state governments as Indians. People in various Powhatan communities hosted those white researchers, told them stories, and otherwise gave them information that represented their identities as Native Americans. Bureau of American Ethnology ethnographer, quite well-known, um, James Mooney published work about Powhatan people as Native people at a time when such validation was hard to come by in Virginia. And we know that a Powhatan later used Smithsonian connections to get endorsement of his status as a tribal leader in order to represent his people at the 1893 World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago. Subsequently, a well-known folklorist and ethnographer at the University of Pennsylvania, Frank Speck, also did field work among Powhatan groups, and he published results of his research attesting to the facts of Powhatan people's Indianness in detail. He, too, was welcomed in the Powhatan communities and received information from individual members and leaders of those communities. And Speck's work, he didn't quite entirely drop some prevalent notions of that day about Native cultures before 1492 as the true benchmarks for authentic Indianness. But he also did display awareness of the fact that Native American societies and cultures are no more static than those in other parts of the world. He understood that all cultures are naturally in flux, borrowing from other cultures and responding to new conditions and pressures from within and outside the community. In that way, I think he was helpful in encouraging white folks to see Powhatan people as real Indians, despite the fact that their language and much of their material culture looked like those of their black and white neighbors. He encouraged Powhatan groups to collaborate in their work to establish their indigenous identities in the eyes of non-Indians, and his publications served to support that cause. Frank Speck also used his status as a prominent academic to speak directly to non-scholars about his views of Powhatan people's Indianness. For example, during World War II, Powhatan people object, some Powhatan individuals objected to being classified as African-Americans for purposes of the military draft. Speck advocated for their Indianness to white officials, advocacy that was surely welcomed by the Native communities and individuals affected. I mean, short, um, Speck was not entirely free from prevalent notions among whites about what made a full-blooded Indian or the importance of pre-1492 traditions as markers of real Indianness. But he took a broader view of cultural change and Indian identities than many white people of his day and even some ethnographers of his time. And he had an active interest in helping to further the political goals of Powhatan people as they asserted their Indianness in the face of opposition by official Virginia in the Jim Crow era. 
Mm. This idea of asserting identity um, comes up in a few other uh, sort of, I suppose, institutional interactions in the book. Um, And I'd love to kind of ask you to tell us a bit about them, particularly around the role of churches and schools and this idea of demonstrating identity, claiming identity. Um, What did that look like? Well, shortly after the United States Civil War, um, the looming power of segregation and disfranchisement was getting more clear. And the Mattapanai and Pamunkey people who had reservations um, and other Powhatan communities could see the dangers of being perceived by whites as not white um, in the wake of emancipation. The Mattapanai and Pamunkey had not only reservation lands, but also a political structure that had long been recognized by whites. In response to the gathering storm of Jim Crow, non-reservation native groups too formed their own legal corporate bodies as Indian people, beginning with the Chickahominy. Virginia native groups also worked to establish their own schools and churches over decades after the Civil War, especially in the first half of the 20th century. Those churches and schools were major focal points for maintaining and building Indian identities and community cohesion. They were native spaces separate from black and white institutions and therefore emblems of Indian identity in that way. They provided opportunities not only for social gathering and community building, but also for Powhatan individuals to lead within their own communities in settings where Native individuals could exert some independence and autonomy as Indians. In addition, the Powhatan Baptist congregations that established themselves as Indian churches after the Civil War provided a bridge to the white Baptist hierarchy in the United States, while also setting them apart as ethnically distinctive churches. Those Powhatan Baptist Indian churches joined the otherwise white Regional Dover Baptist Association, which in turn was linked to the statewide organization of white Baptist churches. This provided and promoted a level of recognition of their status as Indians among a sizable group of white Baptists. Similarly, the handful of Indian schools established by Powhatan people underscored their status as Native Americans, since the schools were separate and distinct from black and white schools in Virginia's segregated school systems of the Jim Crow era. Powhatan peoples got an important, if grudging, level of acknowledgement from Virginia education officials of their indigenous and not black status in the course of establishing and maintaining their schools. This, however, um, was impacted when obviously segregation was um, abolished. So what, what happened to the schools once the binary and therefore the school segregation was lifted? And that's another really great question. Um, thank you. <laughs> um, after the, the U.S. Supreme Court in the 1954 Brown v. Board decision ruled against Virginia's systems of segregated schools, within a few years there were no more separate public Indian schools for primary and secondary Native students in Virginia. There 
is no question that segregation was a monstrous evil. But for Powhatan people, desegregation meant the loss of an institution they had built that was a key to community cohesion and to preserving and fostering the Indian identities of individuals in those communities. I think there's sort of a comparison to be made um, with what happened when black and white schools merged. Before school desegregation, black schools had substandard facilities and textbooks. It's also true that many black teachers in those black schools were highly educated and skilled and dedicated. And some of them made a point of teaching black history. In some places in the American South, as schools desegregated and consolidated, black teachers were the first to be let go. So there is that um, issue connected with desegregation. But on the other hand, the various civil rights movements in the United States after World War II also created major new openings and opportunities for Native peoples to assert their rights. Red power became a banner for working towards self-determination for American Indians. By the 19, in the 1980s, the state of Virginia embarked on a process for formally recognizing indigenous groups in addition to the reservation Mattapanai and Pamunkey. More recently, the federal government has recognized a number of those non-reservation communities, and that has increased the abilities of Virginia Indians to chart their own courses and build resources as communities It has heightened awareness of indigenous people's rights and of their very existence in Virginia after decades of white officials' efforts to deny that there were any real Indians in the state. Hmm. Very interesting um, sort of trajectory and um, useful, I think, nuance to understanding uh, the impact of desegregation as well as, of course, the Jim Crow laws uh, that you helped us understand earlier. Um, There's one other aspect I'd like to pick up, which comes out kind of through implication with the idea of um, exhibitions and world fair type things, uh, and also of teaching culture and presenting visible identity. You discuss in the book public performances of Native identity, um, essentially throughout this time period, if I'm understanding correctly. How can we think about those public performances within this discourse of sort of race, where the lines are drawn between races? Um, where can we sort of situate and think about public, visible performance of Native identity within that? That's another great question. And I, I think the answers are many faceted, but one that really interested me in looking at this has to do with stereotypes of Indianness in the United States, which can be very powerful. Uh, maybe all your listeners are familiar with Buffalo Bill's Wild West shows, and with American movie, yeah, and and with American movie and television westerns. And they're probably they have almost surely seen how regalia specific to Plains Indians has become an instantly recognizable and stereotypical sign of what constitutes true Indianness in America. 
Powhatan people created public performances in which they sometimes used plain style markers as they clothed themselves for those events. By at least the 1890s, they were staging and charging admission for public performances that included such, quote, Indian roles and costumes, unquote, as a green corn dance and a reenactment of the well-worn story of how Pocahontas supposedly saved John Smith's life in the early years of the Jamestown colony. They also staged public events in Richmond in which they gave the governor of Virginia a tribute of game as a reminder of their status based on their 17th century relationships with the colonial government. This kind of public pageantry served to inform non-native Virginians that Powhatan peoples were present and proud citizens of modern Virginia, neither black nor white. They also marked Virginia natives as key players in the founding of the English colony at Jamestown, which is one of the origin stories of the modern United States. I argue that this was a strategic use of stereotypes designed to convince white audiences of Powhatan Indianness, using tools readily to hand in white popular culture. Further, it seems to me that by using Pan-Indian symbols, such as fringed garments and feathers in their hair, they were connecting their history in Virginia to a national history of the dispossession and oppression of Native peoples continent-wide. Costuming and dancing at these events linked Powhatan people to a pan-Indian narrative about the ongoing presence and persistence of Native peoples in the United States, broadly speaking. I really appreciated um, your argument about the strategic choice of it and the kind of like, hmm, okay, well, if this is what they're expecting, if this is what they're assuming, how can we make that work for us? Um, And I think that that's a really, I mean, it makes a lot of sense with the um, material that you present in the book that it seems a very clear argument. um, And it's part of what I think you're doing generally of looking kind of from the community outwards, sort of what does the community want and how are they going to get it? Um, rather than sort of assuming that there is this other that lives over here that is doing something strange. Um, So I think that's kind of a good note to wrap up our highlights tour, really, of the book um, and the things that you're doing, uh, which really leaves me only with my last question. Um, The book is obviously out. It's available for people to read. Is there anything you're working on now or next you could maybe give us a sneak preview of? Oh, that's that's a really nice question. There are a lot of interesting possibilities. I haven't really settled on anyone right now, so it's kind of fun to think about different projects I might take on. Um, one example, um, the history of citizenship among Native Americans in the United States, including their voting rights, is pretty complicated. And it seems to have been complicated not just for federally recognized tribes, but also for indigenous communities who did not have federal recognition. So one of the questions that's been nagging me is how and whether Virginia Indian Virginia Indians voted or not in pre-Civil War Virginia. There may not be enough documentation or other evidence um, to really do a good study of that question, but it's been bugging me. Um, on a lighter note, 
I've never written fiction, but I think a good novelist could write something wonderful out of the lives of Lucy Pierman Scott and her children, grandchildren and great-grandchildren. I found that family's letters very moving. I personally always find that um, something bugging you usually ends up with something good, whether it's a book or something else, that that tends to be <laughs> quite a powerful motivation um, yes, for right. research. Right. So I'm curious to see what comes out of that. But in the meantime, um, while you are off exploring possibilities, listeners can read the book we've been discussing, which is titled Being Indigenous in Jim Crow, Virginia, uh, published by the University of Oklahoma Press in 2022. Laura, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thank you so much, Dr. Melcher. This has been a pleasure.